0: the meeting to order, please. Got it. it. That's
1: right. That's
2: right.
0: Could we have a roll call? Trustee Lawrence? Mm
3: -hmm. Here. (laughs) Trustee Banerjee?
4: Here.
3: Trustee DeVries? Here. Trustee Hernandez is absent today. Trustee Jensen?
0: Here. Trustee Luginani? Present. Trustee Varney? Here. Trustee Wortian we have a quorum. Great thank you. Um, before we begin the regular meeting we do have public comment and I have one speaker, uh, mr. Joe Rose. Um, and in front of you I think the secretary Susanna is passing out a document or a piece of paper that he'd like to speak to. So mr. Rose, if you'd like to come up
2: Thank you very Thank you very much President Lawrence and uh, distinguished board. I, I've got a, a little flowchart here, and what it is is uh, talking about uh, what MHSA funding is available and what programs. At the top, uh, Behavioral Health Services is funding the stigma reduction programs, and on the left-hand side is the prevention and early intervention programs. On the right-hand side is the uh, post-hospitalization uh, reduction programs, so those are the three major programs that I'm looking at as a, a member of the um, adult committee for the for the mental health board. And so my concern is if we are funding the stigma reduction, that means that more people, in my opinion, more people should be seeking services if we are reducing stigma. That should be a component of, of stigma reduction. So what that does, in my mind, is it puts more pressure on a system that's really struggling to keep up with the needs of, of, of the psychiatric community right now. So I'm, I'm trying to get some numbers for that. And on the left-hand side there where it says prevention early intervention, if... We are actually getting some results from prevention, early intervention. We should be, in my opinion, reducing initial hospitalizations. So that's what I'm trying to look at right now in terms of numbers. And on the right-hand side, there post-hospitalizations. The uh, Board of Supervisors just approved ten uh, programs, which should be uh, funded to reduce rehospitalizations. So. Uh, one of those programs is the Mentor on Discharge program, which is a program actually of the NAMI Alameda County South affiliate. And we've been able to show that we've been able to significantly reduce rehospitalizations. We haven't been able to get funding from behavioral health care, even though the Board of Supervisors has approved it. It's been two years and we're still working on getting funding for that. And we've been able to show that there's been a uh, cost reduction of about 350% if you look at the number of reductions. And I can come back and give you some detailed statistics on that particular program. So my question to you is at the bottom is, if we're really reducing rehospitalization by a significant amount, is there any way that this board can get MHSA funding through the Board of Supervisors to help fund that program? So, uh, again... I just want to kind of give you a, a high-level thing of what I'm looking at here at the, the uh, adult committee. We're going to be trying to put some money, uh, some numbers on this and, and associate it with dollars. So it's just a work in process right now. But that's what we're working on, and I'll be happy to come back with, to you and talk with you a little bit about that Mentor on Discharge program because we are just implementing that in San Francisco and in Santa Clara right now because of the results that we're getting in Alameda County. So, thank you very much, board.
0: Thank you, mr rose. we We will pass your information on. Thank you. Uh, and then before we get into the the larger issue of our um, education session today, I do want to acknowledge an individual uh, in our midst who has made a significant impact in our organization, and one who we will not put traitor next to the name, but in fact will just acknowledge the wonderful opportunity she has to grow, and perhaps when she gets to the other side of the force, she will come back to us. Um, And so um, I would like to present to Carla Denise. Um, this plaque that we have for you. It's one of those beautiful glass, if I can get it open. <laughs> it's one of those beautiful glass uh, that says to Carla Denise Edwards in appreciation of your efforts to forward our mission of caring, healing, teaching and serving all Alameda County Health System. So, well, thank you. Thank um, you. personally, you know, I'm sure there will be others who want to make a statement but from my perspective um, you've come through a very difficult time with us you know, we've had our highs and we've had our lows but what I have always admired about you is your ability to brush those things off and always focus on, on the needs of this organization and not only have you been what I would call an administrator dealing with the bureaucratic issues but you have been able to maintain that personal relationship, and I think you are a wonderful human being, and you're going to be missed greatly.
5: So, is this thing on? Yeah, it is. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, I, I. This is a bit tough for me, um, and and probably oddly so since I'm the newest member of the team, uh, but um, uh point in fact, as many of you know, I, I knew of Carla Denise uh, before I came to the system uh, through her work through AHS and being a part of the California safety net community. Uh, and I have always uh, regarded her as well as uh, colleagues as a really strong advocate for um, AHS as a system, but uh, most importantly, the mission and the people we serve. And, and um, I think throughout uh, our, our um, uh, network has been viewed as a Highly uh, uh, qualified and uh, strong, strong uh, um, skill-wise, uh, 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 strategic planner, strategic thinker, uh, systems thinker, and so uh, I was incredibly honored to have the opportunity to come work with her uh, and uh, have learned even more. She's, she's, I, I said to her team as we were talking uh, early, was that last week or this week? Good grief, last week. Um, that uh, she's always thoughtful, she's always um, uh, pushing the envelope, she's occasionally uh, a bit on the harassing side because she wants things to get done, <laughs> uh, but she's always she, she keeps it, did I say nagger? I may have said nagger. Uh, I meant that with all the all the love that comes through that, that word, uh, but, but always pushing, I think, me uh, um, uh, foremost, but all of us, I think, on the team to really uh, be at our best and to really be thinking of all facets of of what we do and the implications it has on the people we serve. And to to that end, I mean, the presentation that she and Dr. Swift have worked on today uh, has been uh, it's been a really interesting uh, ride and a journey for all of us. And it's been fun to actually think through all these things. And so I I know it'll come through today, but it's it's really been fun also for me to watch CD. Keep the level of engagement uh, in this and everything else she's been doing um, up to the end. I mean, she she hasn't wavered at all, and you know, I like to think as a as a as a, she calls me boss. I don't. Necessarily like that, but she's not the only one who does. Uh, so, uh, so I've learned to live with it. Uh, but, but you know, as a boss, I, I you know, I like to think yes, I'm still paying you, so I want you to come to work. But, but I know the natural inclination for people to sort of uh, clock out. Uh, but she has not done that at all, and she's really been. I, you know, I was reflecting on when I left LA, and I, I was the same way. But I actually think I slacked up a little bit, uh, and so I was thinking about how she's been doing this, and I thought I, I could do that. I could have done that better. <laughs> so, so. Uh, so I'm really going to miss her, and I, you know, I know that other members of the team who uh, may or may not uh, uh, speak up this evening in the interest of uh, our, our, our education session. Uh, I know that I speak for them when I say that you know she's an uh, incredible jewel, and uh, Providence and Seattle are, are very lucky to have her. She's not very far away, and I think we uh, promised to keep her uh, on email strings for conference calls that we would have just in case she's bored and wants to dial in and see, make sure we're not dropping the ball on anything. So we love you, and we're going to miss you, and we appreciate everything you've done.
6: Thank you. Yes, please. Um, I want to say a special thanks to Carla Denise as one of the trustees that's worked closely with her um, as chair of the Strategic Planning Committee. I was struck by just how much she brings amplifies the voice of the of those in the margins you really managed to do that and you were some of us when we were in the deep in the financial uh you know mindset to be always telling us you know merge your mission with your margins merge that and that is that that sensibility and that voice that you brought was very very um crucial to the process as well you'll be Sorely missed you've brought, and I think today's um, session is really a legacy to what you all have been doing with equity and making us uh, really understand um, the work that goes into our mission. So, thank you for all, and good luck, Carla Denise.
0: Um, and Suzanne has planned, as you can see over to the side, a, a, a little feast for those who are here and a little party. So I'm going to, which is unlike me because I like to get this stuff done, uh, I'm going to call a five minute recess so that people can thank you, get some stuff, and give you. Oh, did you? I'm sorry. You? you did you raise your hand? <laughs> <laughs>
7: you, you may.
8: You put that back when you (laughs) did (laughs) it. So, I've often been, um, it's been said that one of my strengths is that I don't get emotional very often about stuff, and I don't typically show my reactions, so I'm going to try to live to that brand, but it'll be a bit of a challenge. But I want to speak a little bit on behalf of the team. I will say that two years ago, someone encouraged me to meet with Carla Denise and talk about a position that she had available, and I was like, well, okay, I'll give it a shot, and she and I, we talked for maybe an hour and a half, and she turned to me, and she says, well, you know, Terry, everybody wants to meet me, but do you want the job? And I said, well, you know, I wasn't really sure but now that we've had a conversation, I think I do, because she was so passionate about where Alameda Health System needed to go, the things they needed to do to get there, and really painted a path for me in terms of how I could support that direction. So I'm very fortunate to have had that conversation. Um, Carl Denise will be greatly missed. Um, I will say that she and I have many conversations and about some of the difficulties and challenges that we were going through, and I would always want to say to her at the end, you know, Carl Denise, you care too much. Um, and you can really tell she wore her feelings for the organization on her sleeve and it forced you to do the same. Um, but there's a saying that people don't really care about how much you know until they know how much you care, and I think she demonstrates that day in and day out. The other thing I learned about Carl Denise early on is I can be somewhat standoffish but I had to go to these meetings and she would be giving out all these hugs to people. And I finally went to her and I said, well, you never hug me. And she says, well, you never really look like you wanted a hug. <laughs> so, so now I make, I, make, I make it very clear that I, 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 I like Carla Denise's hugs and and, in recognition two things, in recognition of her um, being a hugger um, I'm going to ask the team to come up and each one of us are going to give you a hug um, to sort of just one more time let you know how much we're going to miss you as a reporter I'm obligated to ask one last question And maybe it's that one thing that may make her decide to stay. So, um, David, if you can tee up this next song as we give the hugs to give Carla Denise something to ponder. We're going to miss you, Carla Denise.
0: I'm going to uh, turn the meeting over to... um Oops, we have, I'm sorry, we have a consent agenda for approval of the minutes for the November 12th board meeting.
9: Why don't I go ahead and move that?
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Any discussion? All those in favor? Aye. Thank you very much. Uh, Then I'll turn it over to who? Carla Denise. Thank you very much.
10: Good afternoon, uh, trustees, as well as members of the community. Um, I am thrilled uh, to actually turn the baton uh, to Dr. Minnie Swift, who I'd like to introduce. She's going to speak with you about health disparities and work that's being done, not just within our community, but nationally, to try to achieve health equity. One of the things that um, makes this so exciting is that um, our mission and our vision are all wrapped around um, our ability not just to be world-class, but to fight uh, the hard fight of eliminating disparities in outcomes, uh, for the communities that we serve. And many, um, has been doing this work throughout her professional career. And really the only reason I'm on the agenda is because she's humble and she's shy and she wouldn't tell you how great she is. So I wanted to make sure that happened before she started speaking. Um, Her bio was in the packet, and if you don't know, uh, she is the chief medical officer for Highland Hospital. She has done um, her entire career with us, but even before that, probably at conception, she was with us because her mother was a provider at Alameda Hospital, and so she's been with us before she was a twinkle in her parents' eye. Most recently, I'll share with you, Minnie was selected to be in the inaugural class of women to be trained by America Essential Hospitals to uh, learn greater capacity for leadership um, through a leadership academy. This is a very uh, selective group that's really handpicking women who have the potential to be the future CEOs of not just hospitals, but health systems across the country. Less than 4% of the CEOs in the country are women. And so there's a very intentional process to increase that number. And so she's one of the first individuals to participate in such a leadership academy. And I think it speaks volumes for her and the work that she does. She's an internist by training and has extensive experience in developing programs, running programs, process improvement, Um, but most importantly, she's passionate about giving her time personally and professionally to meeting the social needs, the economic needs, the physical needs, the behavioral health needs, and the clinical needs of the patients that she serves. She knows her patients inside and out, and they know her. You'll see in the room a reflection of a project that she's going to describe to you um, where she wanted to hear the voice and create a venue by which her patients could explain to her things that are not typically or easily explained in words and gave them the opportunity to do that in pictures. And so I want to turn the baton over to Minnie who will talk with us um, about health equity and health disparities, what that means, why it's so important for us to have this conversation share a little bit about the work that's been happening but really facilitate a conversation about what we need to continue to do to maintain the effort of trying to achieve such a high aspiration for our community so it's been my pleasure many working with you Um, you've been one of the joys of coming to work every day knowing the passion and commitment that you have so thank you for allowing me to help you and support you with this Mm -hmm.
3: Thank you so much, CD, for all of the support that you've given me in our time together. And and I wanted to express my gratitude to the trustees for allowing me to come and share a little bit about health disparities. Um, I also wanted to thank my team. Some of our Stellar Care Transitions team members are here and I'd like to ask them to stand up. Um, Gretchen, Maya, Elizabeth, um, they see our patients every day. They follow them wherever they need, in the home, in homeless shelters, in the community, in the clinic. And um, their whole program is designed to acknowledge the social determinants of health um, in order to promote health outcomes and the care plan. And we'll talk a little bit more, you'll hopefully by the end of this understand a little bit more about what that means, but I just wanted to acknowledge them Um, and for the amazing work that they are doing. Much of their work is um, new in the healthcare field, Um, and so um, they're really piloting some novel strategies that we'll talk about a little later, but just wanted to acknowledge them. So let's get started. Um, So this is the agenda that I had created. We'll review some basic definitions to make sure we're all speaking uh, the same, using the same vocabulary. We'll review some health disparity data in Alameda County. We'll look at the practitioner's framework, which is really AHS's perspective in, in this area. And we'll review what we're calling a healthcare blueprint for equity um, the scientific strategies that, um, scientific-based strategies that healthcare organizations um, can use to address healthcare disparities. Um, I have designed this talk so it is more of an education. Um, there are examples from AHS woven in, um, but we can talk a little bit more after the slide deck. I'll try to go through quickly about our next steps, but feel free to interrupt, as, you know, ask me questions and things like that. So let's move on to dis- definitions. Oh, and then one thing I wanted to say was this: a little bit about this photo voice project. So um, in 2015, our Care Transitions team and the Healthy Hearts Clinic, the cardiology clinic above us, received a small grant. We really, as Carla Denise indicated, wanted to understand what it was like for our patients to live with a particular diagnosis um, called heart failure. Um, We got a small grant. We were able to give eight African-American men cameras, and we asked them to take pictures to represent what it was like to live with this illness. Um, a research student then interviewed them, coded the interviews, and we certain these themes started evolving. So we've hung them up on the, on the walls for you to see so we can bring the voice of our patients into this conversation. Um, throughout the talk, I've highlighted a few of them just to, to reinforce some of the concepts. And, that, and this is the first one. Our pa- this is a photo of Citibank. And our patient said, this picture here is where I bank. When I was awarded permanent disability, this is the first bank that I went to make my direct deposit. Before then, I had no checking accounts. I had no bank accounts. So it was kind of like putting me back on the map. And I'd ask you to think about that as we talk about this. What is, what is that all about, that somebody had to get so ill that they got disability and they were finally able to establish a source of income? Here is the definition of a health disparity as defined by Healthy People 2020. Healthy People is a federal agency looking at the health of the nation and forecasting the strategies needed. Um, Health disparities adversely affect groups of people who have um, historically been uh, the victims of discrimination or exclusion. So... um, based on their race, gender, mental illness, um, other obstacles um, to their health. When we talk about health equity, um, we are really looking for the attainment of the highest level of health for all people. And it really requires valuing everyone equally with an ongoing focus um, to reduce um, and address the areas where inequity can occur. I think it's important to talk about the difference between equality and equity. And equality, as you know, is everybody gets the same resource. But when we're talking about equity, it means that individuals get the resources that they need. Now the question of why should AHS focus on equity? Well, you can see on the right, Um, The list, patients with limited English proficiency may experience more test ordering in the emergency department because of a provider's inability to communicate and ask simple questions in the history. They may have poor patient experience. They may be exposed to less evidence-based care, and they may experience more medical errors. In 2002, the Institute of Medicine, another federal organization, um, issued this report called Crossing the Quality Chasm. This report provided a blueprint for how we could redesign the US healthcare system to provide high-quality care. (coughs) The blueprint really called for defining high-quality care as having six domains. Care that is safe, cost-effective, patient-centered, timely, efficient, and equitable. And I know here at AHS, we, we look a lot, we look. We examine these various domains. We're reporting to you the time it takes for a patient to move from any one of our emergency departments to a unit in the hospital. We're looking at safety measures and harm reduction. We're looking at cost effectiveness. We're looking at SORIAN to make sure we have evidence-based order sets in our electronic health record. But there's a real opportunity to use that equity domain and the quality lens um, to improve health outcomes. Now let's look at what, at some health disparities in Alameda County and the catchment areas of AHS. These first couple of slides um, show some demographic data. So on the left, you'll see that we are a very racially, ethnically diverse community. On the right, we're seeing an evolving education and income disparity. White individuals have the highest income based in 2011 of 81,000 with 50% um, attain, uh, who have attained college degree or more. In contrast, African-Americans um, in this county um, have at least 50% less. And the other ethnicities and races are somewhere in the middle. On the left, you can see that almost 70% of our, of our county residents are native uh, to the U.S., but that means 30% of individuals were born outside. And so it should come as no surprise that such a high percentage of people do not speak English as their first language in their households. Now let's look at some of the, um, the neighborhood factors that influence health. These are not pictures of Alameda County, but there are places in Alameda County that look like this. And what must, this, what must it be like for individuals to try to maintain their health when they're living in environments like this? And what is it like for children living in this, these types of environments? We know that your zip code actually matters more than your genetic code when talking about health and life expectancy. Place really does matter. Now, just to reorient ourselves, this is Alameda County. And this is a catchment area that we'll be talking about in the next couple of slides. Here, this is um, a, a debt certificate. And in, at the Alameda uh, Department of Public Health, we have at least 500,000 on record at any given time. And there are four critical pieces of data that we can use from this death certificate to have a very precise understanding of the health status of residents in Alameda County. This includes the death diagnosis, age of death, race or ethnicity, and neighborhood. We can use these death certificates to go back in time to construct a life expectancy narrative As far back, and I'm sorry this slide, at least on that screen, is a little unclear, we're going back as far as 1960. From 1960 in Alameda County to 2005, um, you can see that there is a growing difference in life expectancy when you're comparing white individuals with African Americans. And um, before 1990, we were not, the U.S. census data really only had three options, white, African-American, and other. And so that is why, you know, we are only looking at these. So you can see that between 1960 and 2005, a time of incredible explosion, um, expansion in medical technology, MRIs, CT scans, super drugs, uh, minimally invasive surgeries, Medical technology is exploding during this time, and yet life expectancy has decreased by almost eight years for one group of individuals. We can use this death certificate also to map out life expectancy by zip code. Here we have Alameda County. The green areas are where individuals have a life expectancy of greater than 80 years. The red areas are neighborhoods where life expectancy is less than 74 and the yellow areas are in between. Each zip code also has a poverty rate and we can look at the poverty rate of each zip code. And so now we can see that each neighborhood has a life expectancy rate and a poverty rate. When we put these two together a social gradient starts to emerge. So here on the y-axis, we have life expectancy and age. And on the x-axis, we have neighborhoods. Uh, from on the left, you have affluent neighborhoods defined as less than 10% of the individuals in those neighborhoods um, live at the, po- the poverty line, which in this county is about $11,000 for an in- uh, individual and 23,000 for a family of four. And on the right, we go to very high poverty, which means that 30% of individuals in those zip codes live at that poverty level. And you can see here that that social gradient is starting to emerge, a health-wealth gradient showing that that eight-year life, dif- life expectancy difference. This health-wealth gradient is not unique to Alameda County it is seen in, other, in every metropolitan area in the United States. So we, here we have Cleveland, Baltimore, Los Angeles, New York, Seattle, and um, Hennepin County. However, in using this, we can, we can use statistics to calculate how much we need for each to increase a year, um, one year of life expectancy. And, and in the Bay Area, it is about 12,500. In Cleveland, it is half of this, $6,000. Above 150, um, this, this benefit appears to plateau. Um, and I just wanted to point out that um, that this difference that we're seeing in Alameda County between the areas in red and the areas in green are the same difference that you would see between Nicaragua and the Netherlands. And so when we think about that first world, third world contrast, we're seeing that right here in our own county and the catchment areas of AHS. Another one of my patients said, being an athlete, you never expect to need a walker, especially at the age I'm at, 46. I've been an athlete all my life and don't smoke, never done drugs, not an abusive drinker you know, I have to ask myself how I can ever come to this, a walker of all things. And he has other, other very poignant and painful observations, um, if you get a chance. So what is it about living in poverty that causes this um, decrease in life expectancy? And literally, how does it get underneath our skin? Well, we know now that individuals um, living in high-stress situations, um, um, particularly in highly impoverished areas, don't have control over their stressors. Um, This constant state of stress is best known as fight or flight. And cortisol is best known for its role in this situation. So cortisol is a stress hormone. Um, Basically, it works to um, increase... When an individual is stressed, cortisol is activated, glucose floods the body, arteries narrow, and your heart rate kicks up because you need to really be, be um, able to perform. When individuals never have a reprieve from this sort of stress, the cortisol moves on to um, through these mechanisms increase glucose, art, narrowing of the arteries to then to start to damage almost every organ in the human body. Um, and, and then we see increased rates of um, advanced diseases at early ages and early mortality. <coughs> and this is how it plays out on healthcare utilization. So, this is again, all of this data is from the Alameda County Department of Public Health. And here we're looking at neighborhoods, on the, um, we're looking at age adjusted rate per 100,000. The neighborhood and the illnesses are on the x axis. And you can see in every area, um, the less you have, the higher your mortality. And what is particularly striking about this slide is that stroke, based on where you live in Alameda County, you could have two times the mortality for stroke. We can look at this by age. On the left, you can see age groups. So uh, school-age children, people who should be focused on education, could have three times the rate of mortality simply based on the, in the neighborhood in which they live. Looking at the age groups of 25 and 40, people who are historically, you know, working, contributing to the community could have 2.5 times higher mortality simply based on their neighborhood. As they get older, these differences start to um, even out, but this disparity remains. So these disparities, these health disparities, are really the tip of the iceberg for a lot of the underlying threats to health. Here my patient said, I have certain foods I'm not supposed to eat anymore. You guys took the liquor store, the grocery store, down to the little old mini market and closed it off to me because I can't eat this food. So it should come as no surprise that actually eighty percent of what influences our life expectancy happens outside of AHS and other healthcare organizations. But what should we? What is our role in all of this? AHS and other healthcare organizations are. We are. We have. We are in the medical space. We treat individuals, and that medical model addresses behaviors, disease, and death. What we've been talking about are the upstream drivers, the societal drivers, that really start with biases, beliefs about the value of certain populations versus others, the policies and practices that are the result of those, and the either investment or divestment that certain communities experience as a result of those policies. What do we have to treat these? Well, we have emergency rooms to prevent death. We have clinics to address disease and we provide health education to redirect behavior. Working upstream, we really need to be working on building power and efficacy in the places that our patients live in those neighborhoods. Changing policies and changing the narrative around um, which populations um, are valued. And there are some really powerful things that we can do in the medical model. Here is, a, is our team considers this a victory. Our patient said, this jar of soy sauce, something I used before I had the health problem all the time. It has 920 milligrams of sodium. Yeah, 30%. I have been taught how to read labels, so anything I purchase now, before it goes into my basket, I look at the sodium content. And this patient continues to amaze us with his mathematical jujitsu that he likes to talk about in clinic and with our care team. And when he came to us, he, you know, he, he wasn't aware of this. So there are some really important and powerful things that healthcare organizations can do. There are five areas of impact that are based in scientific evidence and I'd like to walk through those now quickly. Pause, take a breath. The first area for intervention is really in the domain of partnerships with our patients, communities, and families. And what this slide is really talking about is providing venues and opportunities for patients and their caregivers to participate in the structure of care that we provide. The next area is in the domain of governance and leadership. Equity really, the best practice is that equity would be incorporated into an organization's strategic plan. Policies would reflect equity, and these are just some examples. Policies around signage and the languages that we we provide measurement of workforce diversity, care plans that are provided in a culturally and linguistically appropriate manner, and the stratification of quality reports by measures of vulnerability. And here's an example. So for the past couple of years, um, AHS has been taking a very high-level view of the concordance between our employees and the patients that we serve. And I'll give you a couple minutes to to look at how we're doing. In some areas there is some concordance and in other areas there's room for improvement. The third area is the use of evidence-based practice delivered in a culturally and linguistically sensitive manner. I referenced order sets, so placing checklists in an electronic health record so that every time a provider has the opportunity to order a test or a medication, um, there's a checklist and we don't have to remember what the latest evidence is. Um, Another example would be training, workforce training and educational programs for the staff to really learn and learn about the various types of ethnicities that we serve, their preferences and relationship to the healthcare environment. And there's a balance here between learning, applying, and stereotyping. And and that would be one of the areas that the training would would focus on. The next is really establishing measures for equitable care, standardizing the manner in which we collect data about populations who have been historically discriminated against. And then stratifying our existing quality reports by those measures to understand where we're doing things well and where we need to invest precious resources. Again, moving from equality to equity. So an example would be if we have a cohort of 4,000 patients with hypertension, or high blood pressure, we could stratify them by race, ethnicity, language, and really understand which populations we needed to focus on rather than providing blood pressure education to everybody. This is an example um, using Highland data from 2012. Here we've taken a patient experience report. On the y-axis, you see the top box score. On the x-axis, you see the quarters. And results are stratified by race. And you can see that one race is having a better experience than others. And we would usually use this report, known as an equity report, to understand where we're doing well and which populations we need to tailor our efforts towards. Here we are looking at a readmissions report, the world that our care transitions team lives in. And you can see at the top, one category of patients is having a higher rate of readmission than the others. Readmissions from the hospital include processes from the hospital side and the community side. And you can see that health wealth gradient started to play out here as we move towards the community. This readmission rate, we can see that same health wealth gradient playing out here. The last intervention is something we do really well here at AHS communicating in the patient's language, having robust interpreter services, identifying not only the primary language, but the preferred language for the patient, um, the use of trained medical interpreters, um, developing well-translated materials at a health literacy level um, that patients that are tailored to what the patients need. <laughs> and I close with this last picture from my patient. It's a photograph of broken glass. And he said, That night, someone broke into a car. You always have to be aware, even when you think you're in a safe area. When you walk outside, you may be sick, but you don't want to appear sick because you become vulnerable. And with that, I'll, I'll take a pause and open it up for discussion. You- oh, go ahead. Can In- so you
0: say- No, go ahead. Thank yeah. you.
6: <coughs> Just setting a precedence for using a, a public education uh, example here. In your second slide where you said healthy people, 2020 defines health equity as attainment of the highest level of health uh, for all people, and I'm married to 2020 in my day job but one of the things that um, is often when we think about like the perfect or the other I think about public education where they say FAPE you know it's don't don't like uh, achieving perfect is a hard thing to uh, want to do like it should be Equitable, and I think sometimes when we are trying to change hearts and minds, thinking about equity in the public policy arena as a just and fair inclusion into a society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. So it's not something aspirational and... Perfect, but it's just creating the kind of structural systems where everyone has the same shot at life. You don't have someone having a starting point here and someone having a starting point, you know, that many hundreds of yards behind. So uh, always, uh, when talking to a skeptical sometimes audience, talking about equity, is there are just inherent when we make decisions there are inherent barriers that you're just trying to see that. Everyone has the playing field, and your visual was very, very—you know—the e- equality versus equity is a really compelling video, so, um, graphic. So, thank you.
9: I have a one of um, one of your slides. You talked about um, you know eighty percent of health ha- happens, you know, outside of you know, outside of here. Um, what are some of the things that we are or should or could do to, I mean, should we be extending our reach out to that other 80%? You know, are we, can we? I'm just kind of curious if you can talk about that a little bit, even if we don't have the budget for it.
3: <laughs> yeah, as, as I think, and I'd open up to others, um, as I think about what is it that AHS can do, given that we are in the medical world, Um, What can we do in our space, and how can we reach up into the societal space? Um, And I have a few, I've thought about that and came with um, a slide to suggest. You. So first of all, um, so thank you.
9: <laughs> Th- this wasn't a setup.
3: <laughs> I think first of all, what we, we need to thank me. On- <laughs> <laughs> I know I should I that. First of all, what we need to do is deliver high-quality care reliably, and really purposefully um, address the equity pillar in quality activities. And that is really what we can do using those five strategies in the medical model. Thinking about how AHS can position itself as a, as a good partner, as a good neighbor in those communities, um, life expectancy is tied to income. And um, income is related to educational attainment and to employment. And so as we think about our strategic plan and SG2, we are going to clarify the service lines that need to be addressed. We need a neurology service across the system. We will figure out in each organ system where the priorities are and what our county needs. But in terms of those societal um, opportunities, I think there's a real opportunity for AHS to think about um, the, the continuation of pipeline programs like the Pipeline to Opportunities Program we have one of our um, graduates from the Elam program here. I'd like you to stand up. Evelyn is here, and she's working with us in the Healthy Hearts Clinic, and is part of that. You know that Atlantic grant is allowing her um, and others to look at um, opportunities in healthcare. Um, really figuring out how we can support educational efforts. The next thing would be around employment. What are our employment policies and opportunities at AHS? Are we prioritizing individuals in the community? Are we prioritizing individual? Should we be prioritizing individual zip codes? Um, And then last, as we move into more of a population health approach, as we move into the world of risk and capitation, how can we use a disparities lens to really think about um, how those various populations may be at risk? And so, Mm
5: -hmm.
0: I'll
3: open it up for other
4: comments.
5: If if I can just quickly, trustees, I was going to just underscore some of the things that uh, uh, Dr. Swift just said. We, you know, as I said, we talked a lot about this and and many of the things she just uh, underscored were really kind of um, ways in which we frame that same question. You know, what what do we do that's within the... um, the, the sort of parameters of our mission that that also recognize that so much of what happens uh, relative to the health status and outcomes of the people we serve is beyond sort of the walls of the delivery system mm-hmm. itself. And as she said, point of fact, there's a lot of stuff already happening in that space. Um, like um, um, the homeless outreach clinic, where we're you know trying to go to where where the care is actually needed uh, in the community without having to require everyone to come to us per se. Uh, but a lot of that and, and that program as well involves a great deal of partnership. Where we're saying you know we're we don't want to just be on the reactive side of saying you know as things happen whether they're traumatic or chronic in nature that we're here to kind of take care of it and push people back into the community. But we want to make sure we sort of. Stay that tide in some ways so that um, uh, although right now we're not in a largely capitated context in some cases we are we're going there and and part of that uh, model you look at population health and uh, uh, taking our lives is actually making sure that you can do that in the most cost-effective manner as possible so that means you are pushing out the community more our waiver is actually going to allow us to do that the new medical waiver actually incentivizes us to do that type of work so so there is a lot of synergy and um, Sort of uh, coalescing around this idea of looking at ways to stay within your mission uh, but also to partner with others and looking a lot more holistically at the population you serve. And then the other piece I was going to say is the the two things she has there, which is education and employment. So uh, she provided what I think was a really helpful and uh, current slide of like what the the ethnic breakdown of the population we serve as well as the uh, workforce uh, that I would be particularly proud of as an organization that we have uh, such uh, good synergy and maybe some opportunities there, but but generally really broad synergy around that. Uh, but at the same time, one of the things this thing triggered us to say was, okay, can we do, the same sort of uh, uh, deeper analysis on a, a on a map basis. Let's look at where our workforce comes from. We know we're a regional employer, and so we know that you know it's going to be throughout the Bay Area uh, uh, by and large. But it, it'd be nice to see some sort of co- um, correlation between again the communities that we serve and people who. Um, uh, live in those communities actually working for this organization as well because we that, that way we acknowledge that we aren't just a provider of health care but that we are an employer and we recognize that one determinant of health as she said is is jobs and, and, and income and reasonable uh, uh, wages and so if we can support basically health status by employing and providing uh, actual job opportunities to the same community we serve then we will be moving that needle uh, 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 the age gap and then what that means for life expectancy as well and some of the programs like the, the, the various components of the Pipeline to Opportunities programs. Elam is one of them uh, that focuses on uh, uh, medical school graduates, right? Uh, and the other programs focus at different ages, so 8th graders, middle school, and high schoolers, and we're we're actually going to be doing the same thing, saying, do those participants in those programs come from the communities that we serve as well, to make sure, again, that we're leveraging as much as we can all of the resources that we have to make a uh, meaningful meaningful impact on um, the broader county, obviously, but really understanding that because of that equity piece that we may have to make a more focused effort on those areas where those pockets of disparity and health status are greater. Okay.
6: We'll go first.
7: Uh, thank you for, for this. Um, I was so excited when I looked at the board packet because I have a lot of those slides from when I used to do the Building Blocks collaborative presentations for public health. And I worked with Dr. when on, on all this stuff. And so it's funny that this conversation to me is so old um, for, for a lot of us. And then, yeah, and for others, it's, it's brand new and shocking. Um, the map, the the slide that shows the poverty rate and the life expectancy rate, I actually used to also overlay... Where the, the same 13 census tracts or, or 30, th- 13 to 30 census tracts with the lowest uh, life expectancy and the highest poverty rates are also the same census tracts where uh, probation spends the largest amount of money, mm-hmm. public health, social services agency, and parole. Um, which just tells you a lot. And I actually took it a step further a few years ago and overlaid um, where all of our uh, police shootings, calls for service, and illegal dumping and graffiti was taking place. And it's the exact same neighborhoods. This is where we spend our money. Poverty is really expensive. And so um, I know the city is very interested in this conversation around equity now. The new administration is not interested in equality. Um, We're interested in equity because we recognize that everything you've presented. Um, uh, You know, when I first was hired to work for a city council member back in, God, 1996, uh, we, we were living in the wake of Prop 209, which ended affirmative action. And so what, we struggled with then to see that the city was being more responsive to to these communities was to to target our hiring or our contracting practices to local, small, emerging businesses uh, you know, to try to contract with them. And we tried to have hiring requirements where we can't say that we pick by race, but we can say that we pick, you have to be an Oakland resident. And so I don't know what AHS is, um, what we're bound by, and Mike, maybe it's a question for you, but I think we should Give people ten more points on the application if they're from Alameda County, and I think we should give them an extra five points if they're maybe if they participated in one of these programs. And I, and I also think that because um, I know I've been asking about the the pop, you know, Atlantic I've suggested neighborhoods that I've worked in, Sobranny Park, you know, uh, uh, South Hayward, you know, uh, Hoover Historic District in West Oakland. But they, these are all the same neighborhoods. Um, I also think, though, as a healthcare delivery, as a system, you, you said, what can we do within budget, No, no I think or without regard? Right. <laughs> well, and the thing is, I think it's primary care in these neighborhoods is where it's at. If eighty percent of their, if eighty percent of health of the problem comes from outside the healthcare system, in the system, we need to be at that primary level spending our money on education, on coaching, on going in, into the home, you know, giving people the tips on how to prevent an asthma attack, you know, uh, giving them the HEPAC or what is it, uh, the HVAC, what are the vacuum cleaners called for people with asthma? HEPA filter. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> what is it? The, yeah. yeah, yeah, you the know what it is. That printer. thing, yeah, yeah, the, the HEPAC, yeah, what I know. But I mean, it, it really, it, um, I, I really think that's where it's at. And, and the more we do that, the fewer hospitals we'll build. We won't need them, uh, and so um, I mean this is just great. Thanks, and and so, but I am curious about what more tangible actions, and I guess it is part of our strategic plan uh, that we get health out into these communities because these are the people that are coming here in crisis, and and we we can prevent that. We we really can. So anyway, thank you again.
2: Thank you.
9: <clears throat> that regard to budget, because you know. I often hear a discussion about well we would love to do this but we don't have the money and that's not this is not the time and place right. to have that limitation
7: and, and by the way one last thing I mean this is where the affordable care act wants us to eventually go yes. I have to remember the eye on the big prize. thank I mean the forward thinkingness of that to say that we need to not be fee based but but, you know, population health-based. I mean, we're being told to go in that direction and we're being told to take really tiny little baby steps. But we know that locally we could take much bigger steps uh, to, to do that, so yeah. So.
4: Did you want to go first? Um, thank you, and uh, like Joe, Trustee um, DeVries, I also worked with Dr. Iten and I, I've been paying attention to this from various perspectives, through my career, I and I think that there are a lot of things that have been done by by the um, acute care acute care organizations. And one of the things that comes to mind is um, is infant mortality. About how how acute care organizations have have recognized infant mortality over the uh, it, during this last century, anyway, and and recognized that by working with with new mothers and giving. Education and and even following up, you know, quickly, they can have a significant reduction in infant mortality. I think that um, that I'll look at um, at our president, and I think in. in public education as well you know education is is one aspect of what happens at schools but over the years schools have also been providing counseling and food especially and as we all well know in these in these census tracts this is the the census tracts where where the school is probably the main resource for many of the young yeah. people for food for health for counseling for stress reduction as well as education yeah. so um, I think that we're we're moving in the right direction. I think we have opportunities, and and I look at um, a couple of things. I think that we've done it just in this organization in the past 10 years is locating our clinics in underserved neighborhoods. That's that's critical. Where people see a clinic and they think, oh yeah, you know maybe I'll go there and maybe they'll be able to help me. We. Um, and we also have various work groups. I, I work with the end-of-life care committee. I, I, I don't work with them, but they let me come to the meetings. And, you know, we know that palliative care and hospice are things that, that the, these communities that we're addressing that have disparities are less likely to be aware of and less likely to utilize. So I think that we're moving in the right direction. I look forward to having the strategic plan folks well maybe not focus but at least have a lens to look at these these things through the yeah. strategic plan mm-hmm. thank you dr swift and thank, thank you carla denise you, jim. jim did you have
0: something else Hi. oh i'm sorry Dude. Kenny. So
6: Thank you for that terrific presentation Dr. Swift and <clears throat> what can we do one is that the data is so important because if you don't measure it you can't improve it so the disaggregation of data and seeing it really from that lens is very very key the second thing is that it's, it's really for to be doing equity you have to be equity too like you can't be in the business of doing it for a community if you don't so part of it is holding a lens and looking at the community like we've done, but holding a mirror and looking in at our own selves. And for those of us who work in gender equity, when you think of women's reproductive health and you see a whole set of guys ta- talking about, you know, whether you should have access to contraception or not, you're going like, that's crazy, right? And yet, <laughs> yet, yet, <laughs> we, we we feel perfectly comfortable talking about the community that we have and having such little... Um, Uh, diversity in our leadership team, the ones that actually move, uh, make very critical decision processes. So you know as common sense that it's important to have equity. It's important to have inclusion and diversity is different from inclusion. Diversity is stick a black face in and a brown face in and say check, 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 we've done it but inclusion is really bringing those voices where it's necessary so even when you look at the the proportion of our patients and the proportion of our providers look at are those folks who are the providers, do they have agency really to come in and speak yep. about it? Because we need to have like content experts and context experts who come in and bring those voices. When you make a decision about which program to cut, what what to do, you h- need to have those voices a- with a seat at the table. If you don't have a seat on the table, you are on the menu. It's It's, you know, beyond that. So, A, using that race analysis to kind of think about decisions that you make with a budget subcommittee or something is that when we cut this, using that structural race analysis to see which community will be most impacted by it. What are the things? Those have to, like you have to use a straight race analysis to every single decision point that's made. And if you don't have those voices in the room, bringing that sensibility and doing that. And too often, as a person of color, I can say working in a national organization, the o- the onus of doing the equity work is put on people of color. It's like, there's Dr. Swift. She's doing the equity work. We'll just carry on the way we do. And it's not. It's like there is an obligation for the whole organization to know equity as well as you do. So to the HR people, to everybody else, like any doctor white, black, blue, purple should be able to speak with the kind of assertiveness on this issue just as <clears throat> much as possible because we have so much reams of data to show that you know that disparities don't just happen. It's because, you know, there's systematic um, issues that have to be dealt with. So just as we were talking about the operational issues that we have to do, that equity piece has to be part of all our operations. Thank you.
0: I'm sorry. Uh, You know, in school systems, we, and Tracy alluded to that, that we're always thinking about um, who's in front of the kids that they teach. You know, we want to make certain that you have as many. And as much as I have looked at this, I haven't found any data that, and, and so I'm asking if you have data, can you share that, that shows, well, Everything that Kin Kinney has said rings to me, and I, I believe that intuitively that makes sense. But I haven't seen any data whatsoever that says that it makes a difference in terms of, and we'll just say with the health, that it makes a difference that the, the provider is, in fact, of the same cultural or racial um, as the person that's involved. Clearly, communication, signage, you know, interpretation, all of those things, and to a certain extent, understanding the culture in which you are, you know, if they need their family around them or the taboos about birth control or whatever that happens to be. But is there data that shows, and, and why I ask that question, because intuitively we think that that's the answer, and so you spend a whole lot of time and energy going out and making certain that you're doing the training programs or going into the community, and yet I have not found, in my research anyway, any data that supports that that is the issue. So if you have that, uh, I would really love to see that data. And, and then I, I suppose if I could just make one other comment. Um, you know, there's a there's a Chinese saying that, that says everyone should sweep their own door, each should sweep their own door, and then the world would be clean. And I really do believe it's important that what we espouse we ought to practice. And in our organization, if access, if people can't get health care, and in our organization that's a big deal, if we just improve that the life expectancy in our community may go up dramatically. Mm-hmm. And so while we tend to look outside and feel, and, and I feel exactly the same way, so this isn't a put-down, I want to go out and solve the problem, but we're not sweeping our own door. And as a result, until we, I think, invest time to make certain that a minority member or anybody in this community has to, doesn 't have to wait thirty days or fifty days to get health care seems to me a no point that 's in my view would establish and eliminate some of this inequities that 's my preaching I, I would agree I mean I think that we
3: need to focus on what we do and do it very well and so within the healthcare space providing access understanding which Populations may be at most risk. I mean, we need to start where we are, and then what I would say is using the strategic plan to have a stepwise approach to to have a few interventions that really uh, reach up into the societal factors.
0: But, but data-driven interventions. Yes. So that, to me, would be an important piece. And then
3: with the issue of cultural concordance, I think of the five domains, the literature is the weakest in that area because it's so difficult to measure... Um, the comfort level that one may have when you have a provider with the same cultural concordance as uh, you have. Um, We do know, um, we can do a little bit more research to look at more contemporary um, publications. We do, I am aware that at Hayward, Kaiser Hayward, there is a provider, a medical director there, and he is looking at patient (laughs) experience data um, and looking for um, studying concordance with providers. Um, And he sits down with physicians and says, Hey, you know, you're doing really great in the areas where with your Hindi speaking patients, but you know, with your, you know, Tagalog speaking patients is not so great. So let's talk about what that's all about. And
0: I'm sorry, Jim. We should, it seems to me we should have some national, I mean, this isn't just an Alameda issue, that we should have some national data that shows that health care is, in fact, improved if the individual who is giving the service, the health care, is of the same race or culture as, but, and so if there isn't any, or it doesn't show that, it mm-hmm. seems to me then that we ought to focus on the best health care we can provide as opposed to the person who's providing it. Okay. And uh, this so is speaking as a yeah. as a Latino who sees the statistics up there and says, Oh my gosh, we have no we have no Latinos in our system.
9: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, um go ahead question. So uh, in in the beginning you talked about you know you talked about sort of the the range of disparity and there's many ways to slice it. A couple of things you talked about were you know, mental health. Um, you did talk about income. You know, I don't know if you mentioned you know, you know, victims who were people who experienced violence, but you know, there are things like that. However, it looks like the way that you know, the, the measures that you presented were based upon race and ethnicity. And I'm just wondering if you try to look at some of those other cuts as well on the data. And, and and what that might be telling you.
4: It seems four. like um, you were looking mainly at income. So here at AHS, what we have done is um, we have focused on in terms of health disparities. That, that oh, so good. this
3: talk was the focus was using you know the the highest driver of expectancy is income. Right. But for a health care organization, we could take any measure of do- mm-hmm. you know the problem yeah. is what is a measure of vulnerability we wish to look at how can we collect that data in a standardized fashion across all of our healthcare sites? Yeah. And then the ease with which we are going to be able to overlay those with outcome reports. And because you've given us Midas, we will have you know, mm-hmm. a lot more ability to do that before it was a very labor intensive yeah. um, process. What we were able to do in 2011 was take, um, we were collecting race, Um, and language data, Mm -hmm. we were collecting ethnicity as Latino yes or no. We were able to get into Sorian what we call granular ethnicity. So look at our catchment areas and divide the race types by the ethnicities that we um, collect. So as of today, we are collecting those. Um, We started looking at um, sexual orientation and gender identity to see, okay, how could we collect that data? Where in Sorian would it be stored? Um, So... You know, most health care organizations start with the easier stuff, with the stuff that your registration staff mm-hmm. are collecting every day, and then yeah. we need to move into um, other measures of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And and the Medi-Cal waiver and healthcare reform is pushing us to do that. The Institute of Medicine had a report issued in January where they talked about the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, another, another um, recommendation for data fields that we would collect about... Um, mm-hmm. Isolation, housing, um, food, things like that.
9: Because I would think that what we would want to be doing is finding the, you know, perhaps the, you know, the biggest disparities, or the, you know, or you know, sort of the biggest disparities across the biggest population, because that's going to, you know, reducing that is going to perhaps produce the most good. You know our entire population.
3: In talking, you know, so I, I did, as you know, talk to Tony about this talk. Um, yep. And I was talking about the IOM report and how our team here, we're collecting <clears throat> very, very granular data in our yeah. clinic about who cooks for you. And he said, look, you have one thing that you, you, you just need one thing, which is a zip code. And you know, based on that zip code, it's highly likely that an individual coming from that zip code will have several threats. And so a good place to start um, a good,
4: easy place to start is that zip code, right? I mean, you, you can look and see if they have a supermarket. Most of the zip codes don't even have access to produce. Yeah. Right. I, I want to make one comment and, um, and and kind of throw out a question. I, I, um, you know, as we look at all this data, it's 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 well well presented. And it, but the bottom line is really that we are. Compared to the other health care providers, we are going to be providing health care to this population in these zip codes the The lower income population who has less access to care is necessarily going to be l- more likely to get care through AHS than is a, a you know a Medicare beneficiary who has a Medigap plan that they pay eighty dollars a month on top of their on top of their other expenses you know so we' we're, we're, we have that that population. But, um, that's just my comment, my, my, my question or my, the thing that I want to throw out is with regard to our um, providers, in other and I keep going back to the you know public schools, but um, are, do, do we have any and I'm asking this because' not I don't know, mm-hmm. do we have, do our providers, you know, particularly our nursing staff or our um, technical staff, do they tend to move around and move into less? invasive and more comfortable, less um, into services that where they, and I'll ask doctors where they might, even even our our doctors, where they might be less likely to be serving these populations? And the reason I ask this is because um, I'm wondering whether less experienced providers, new providers tend to be more concentrated in the services that are serving the more... At rest, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So not
1: here. Um, at least, I can speak for the, the majority of the physicians that I work with. They get here and they stay. Mm-hmm. That there's always a little bit of turnover. Um, it's less clear to me. I don't really know so much about the nurses, but I can tell you there are nurses here that have been here since I got here. Um, so it's you know we we do have problems with. The pay scales being a little higher in other places and people having job opportunities elsewhere, but a lot of our staff is here because of the mission and and they stay. I wanted
10: to address Trustee um, Lawrence's comment, and I think it's um, really important that we think about the value that uh, sameness brings in achieving um, equity and treatment, right? Um, I would not argue that everyone has to be the same in order to treat people the same. Right. And we have examples of that right here on our board. I mean, the two of you and three of you have made you, this your life's work, um, whether you're treating people who are low income or people who are you know, racially disadvantaged due to institutional racism. The point here in health equity discussion um, really points to that there are social determinants that drive the health outcomes of particular communities. And it's really a multi-dimensional approach that we have to take. Cultural concordance is one, meaning that the people who treat the patients we serve have to have a particular sensitivity and appreciation for the fact that this demographic and these folks, right, have a higher propensity for disease and that there are reasons for that that are beyond their behavior. And so it's not just because the person smoked, the person lives in a polluted community. It's not just because they ate potato chips, there's no grocery store. So whether you're black, white, or otherwise, you have to have a sensitivity to that as a provider. The second dimension is access to care. And we talked a lot about this as we were talking about strategic plan. If we're not able to provide timely access and high-quality treatment as an organization, we continue to disadvantage the population that we want to treat. So not only do we need cultural concordance. It just started again, didn't it? Um... (laughs) We also have to be able to provide access.
5: Of
10: a green yeah. I know. I know. It's like it's percent The third, though, which is really where um, the driver of the discussion that Minnie is helping us facilitate, is understanding the systemic issues that result in populations having higher rates of disease, like the education and the income. So it might not be that we need more African-American male doctors because they have a better affect or bedside manner. It's because now there are more African-American males who have jobs. And so we've addressed or tackled the systemic issue of economic disadvantage that actually results in having a health disparity. So, it's this multi-dimensional approach to trying to tackle a very complex issue that really starts with what I like to say, the beginnings, it's, it's the institutional and systemic discrimination that has resulted in a group of people being disadvantaged. And that impact causing stress that over time, no human being, right, can manage or handle over long periods of time. So I do think it's minor, but it's, it's a part of a larger puzzle.
5: I I was going to add two thoughts. First of all, this is a very fascinating uh, conversation and and I think really good that we're having it. But two two points I was going to add to that. Uh, One is, I I think one thing that I've uh um become i think increasingly sympathetic or sensitive to in the particularly in healthcare arena but i think it applies in other settings too is that it's uh it's a bidirectional engagement and so while i think your point is is a a really um, a great question and i think uh city's point is as it is but one factor but an important factor for the reason she said is right another reason i would cite is there is uh i have heard and and read over time that there is also the other side's view of my uh, comfort level and ability, even if it's a misinterpreted uh, sort of uh, uh, assumption about how open I can be with a provider with respect to what 's going on in my world and my life and that ability in that individual 's ability to actually understand it so there 's some unspoken sorts of uh, barriers, particularly in low socioeconomic backgrounds and i 'll speak from personal experience about uh, uh, having the comfort for sharing in some degree of candor with someone who you feel like is is, is in a world that's unattainable from uh, from yours, uh, till you get to a point where you know there, some of those barriers are removed, uh, whether they're again fair or unfair, and it may well be unfair because some, I, I started to appreciate as I was growing up that a lot of these sort of uh, uh, thanks to a great a great deal of work for people in the 60s and 70s and, and even before that, uh, the issues in our time were becoming a little less sort of um, uh, race-driven or culturally-driven and more socioeconomically driven. So you know I could see an African-American person and maybe th- think I have this sort of unspoken connection with them and realize they were raised in a very affluent background and have no clue about my world and I could look right at you and go, you know exactly what I'm talking about because your background was a lot more similar to mine. So, so I was going to say that one thing is it's not just just about necessarily the provider and his or hers ability to kind of um, relate to and, and, and appreciate what someone may be going through. It's also the ability to actually access that from the other person's willingness or perceived uh, understanding of whether they can share with that person and they get it. Uh, the second thing I going to say to your point about the access uh, or sweeping around your door, absolutely agree with it. Where I would uh, um, maybe stress that or or strain it a bit is what uh, I want to make sure we're doing, and I think what the uh, Affordable Care Act is calling for us to do, is not – uh, uh, just see access as let's create more clinic slots, let's create, you know, uh, right, faster right, ED. Right. It really is about, you know, what do you look at as innovative ways of providing care that are more sensitive to the, the population you serve, whether that's an affluent population or an underserved population, so that you're not just, I mean, one of the things we shared a lot in our forums where uh, we actually have improved access in the organization, meaning the capacity has grown, uh, but the demand has grown faster than the capacity. So if we just Continue to con- traditionally look at access as we need more exam rooms we need more doctors so people can come in and see them we're probably never going to win that battle i mean the the, the 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 tide is coming and we need to figure out how to get to that tide and actually stem some of the demand by actually getting to people before they need to see a doctor Absolutely. and things like that so so it does though. Just into other people's arena, not because we don't want to focus on what is traditionally our space, but we're recognizing that our space is so impacted by what's happening in those spaces that if we don't integrate uh, a little bit more, then we're forcing everybody else to figure this out on their own and we're just standing back, you know, being overwhelmed by it. So. Uh-
0: I'm sorry, Joe, you don't mind. Um, I want to make certain that you you didn't misunderstand my question about the face of, of the provider. Um, because as, as someone who hires, spent their career hiring teachers, that was a high priority with me. But I did it because of my intuition about all the things that you said. And so my question was, I would love to be able, if there is data there, to be able to say, here is validation on why we ought to be doing this uh, as opposed to our sense of of what Makes sense. So that was really the stem of my question, and not that I didn't think it was important.
10: This book, Uh, The Crossing the Quality Chasm, is really a great resource. Um, It's a compilation of research and data that's helped the Institute of Medicine draw some of the conclusions around the need for health equity. So it is actually one resource, but Minnie and I have a whole library. full of resources, and we can probably cut and paste a couple of things that are relevant. Yeah, we'll, uh,
0: we'll I would appreciate that. that. You that know, I, uh, I got into, I came to the board really misunderstanding this, um, that I was going to do what I could to push prevention, mm-hmm. and because, and early you know, with kids and realize we don't do kids. Um, that was my failing. Um, but prevention still...
1: No, we do outpatient kids, so we can still... We,
0: we birth them. We birth them, but then, you, you know, they give them to somebody else. So I'm I'm very interested. But um, I will go back to this idea of, of what we, what we espouse we have to practice. And very simple things at the machine that you pay to the parking There, people stand there because there isn't direction in other languages and how you get out of this bloody parking lot if we believe that diabetes is bad for people you can't go down the hall and buy coca-cola so those are the kinds of things i think that an organization needs to be mindful of so
7: so you wanted to prevent kids. (laughs) kids. <laughs> Which I think is good for your health. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm not talking about sex, Joe. I'm <laughs> talking about <that. laughs> um, so, so a couple things. And um, uh, I just want to reemphasize. And I know um, it's funny because I was gone, you know, out of this building for a month. And I felt like, I'm like, why do I still feel so connected? Because a bunch of us were meeting at the county, you know, for those four governance meetings. And You know, I kept stressing that relationship to the Alameda County Healthcare Services Agency and the Public Health Department and their mission to reach out to these communities and that we need to be a a, a part of that. I know we are, but I I want to really, you know, if they want to work in a community, have them pick us, you know, over someone else to do that work because we are the county hospital, you know, or the county healthcare provider, if you will. So I want to reemphasize that just on a philosophical um, level. Then, on a more substantive level um, this issue around around capital and around money in these neighborhoods, uh, you know I know Terry uh, met with and I met with people from the democracy project I, I mentioned it at a meeting a couple of months ago i 'm going to mention it again tonight, and i 'm also going to mention trustee hernandez 's desire to have that that um, report come forward to the HR committee last summer about, about diversity in our workforce and what it looked like. And Jeanette put together quite a comprehensive report for us. And so I'm, I'm, I'm pre- saying all this to say I'd like to make a motion, or a couple of motions if I can, uh, for our business meetings. And one is um, I'd like to know uh, what would restrain us, and if nothing, that I'd like to pass a policy that sets a local hiring requirement or a local hiring bonus for, you know, as, as soon as possible. You know, and if our board can do that, if we can give people preferential hiring status uh, um, without breaking any laws, um, then I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to explore that. I'd like that to be on our business calendar. Um, uh, and whether that's preferential based on county, based on city, based on zip code of highest, of lowest life expectancy, pff, why not? You know, so, so I really want to have us have a, an official... Action or discussion on that, not just a, this wonderful theoretical conversation, so that 's my one motion that we ask for a report back on what le- what are what legally binds us and, and, and how far can we go and if I can get support on that motion, great. My second motion is I would like an official conversation uh, on who we contract with and whether we follow the county 's procurement standards in terms of always trying to hire. Uh, local companies first Alameda county based because if we are if we're outsourcing our laundry or our cafeteria or our food services or our transportation or our paper shredding or any other Service that this system needs if we're offering that money to businesses that are outside of Alameda County We are not serving the population within the county And and we want to put that capital back in and that's what the democracy project came to talk to us about was how hospitals uh, Around the country that they've worked with are anchor institutions And they've been able to convince hospitals to become these economic drivers in these neighborhoods that they serve because We are serving these people so I'd like to actually have a report and take some official action to hold us to that standard uh, so that this conversation nets those two tangible things and so um i know there's a lot to say but if i could get a second for a motion on those two reports to come forward i'd love it if we can do that uh, you can't
0: do that i can't do that no i'm sorry right. can but, i can i get a but,
7: barometer you know like a finger um, in there w- what
0: We can do, is we're talking about agenda planning, and I'm doing this whole list of things. I think Ken Kenny had something that she wanted, and so what I can do is bring those items to agenda planning and kind of sort through the days, but because it's not on our agenda, it's not a brown... We've got brown act issues here, but um, I heard your voice, and it makes sense, and so we'll... I've made note, and we'll see at what point in time this can be be put on agenda.
7: Because I wanted to, I want these education sessions to lead to action. Yes. Otherwise, we might as well not have them, right? So yeah, those would be might too. hiring. Well, I'm
0: smarter than I was when I came in.
7: So that's, <laughs> I mean, that is <laughs> that's, something. That's something. <laughs> so so again, procurement, contracting, and hiring. And hiring yeah. 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 I was
5: I was just going to say, if I may, Matt, uh, Madam Chair, um, there was. Uh, I've, uh, there was a, a, a outreach made to me uh, for something to bring before this board for uh, consideration, sort of a, a policy position that, uh, uh, in the interest of, of, of focusing this discussion, we did did not do tonight. Uh, but I will uh, be discussing uh, further with um, uh, Trustee Lawrence to see um, uh, whether and how we can bring it forward to the board. And it was around uh, uh, the new. Um, proposed sugary beverage tax that's on the oaklands city uh, that will be on the ballot this year and whether or not uh, this organization would uh, uh, take a position in support of that. So uh, I've been requesting information while we talk about, you know, how this might occur if it does and what are the parameters around if this board decided that uh, you wanted to do that, what were the implications? Or if you don't, you know, that uh, understanding that it certainly doesn't preclude you as individuals from, from uh, doing that. Uh, but as the organization, um, uh, my thought was that, you know, it wasn't necessarily my purview to do that, but that it w- because it's a policy decision and Uh, it's a broader position uh, within that context for the organization so I wanted to bring it before this board for for consideration so we'll talk about you know if we do that in the the, uh, next business meeting or or some other context
0: I
6: wanted to go into the data point and volunteer some of the data that maybe could put, be put up on the board effect. So, uh, you know, there's um, there's so there's reams of data about the uh, you know I- inequities in treatment and uh, the one that you were talking about. You know, does is there efficacy in doing that? So, in different levels of health, like if you have health advocates or health educators or peer counselors, there's a lot of data that shows that if you have that level of support during um, that there is a lot of compliance with that. We know from the healthcare perspective some of the most expensive uh, areas are during transitions of care, like when you're handing over something to someone is when communication can, like, go south. And so there's a lot of data about, like, those. So if I can send that to Susanna and we can have that on board effective we can so that would be great. And the other thing is what we can do was also the fact that so far, like public health has been doing something on its own and healthcare has been doing something. But with the ACA, the fact that we have to be so close knit and doing that is uh, strategically as we move forward as an organization, do we have to see how we complement that uh, those stakeholders outside as we, you know, manage our population. So just much better seamless integration within our county with the other entities that do the kind of ambulatory and, you know, community-based services. So th- that's something that as any organization we can focus on. To that end, um, I would
4: like to ask for an action, there is a um, a grant available through the Department of Health and Human Services (CMS) for 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 healthcare organizations to be partnering with and doing partnering directly with social service providers in the community to to care for Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries, and I hope that we would be pursuing that.
5: If, if we're talking about the same one, we're all over it. Uh, yeah. we're, we're partnering with the county uh, the on that. The one that was
4: announced about a week ago.
5: Yes, yes, year. yes, exactly, yeah.
4: 157 million. Yes. Yeah.
5: So we're, we we actually, I don't know if they ha- I was looking for Brenda, who's gone now, but uh, we're working with the county and some other partners, including, actually, uh, uh, Trustee Hernandez is not here, but Sutter's in that discussion with us as well. But we're looking at how we can merge together and pr- put a a good foot forward for Alameda County to be considered for that funding. But, yeah, thanks. Absolutely, I should say.
10: I would just add to that, and um, it may not be appropriate to start wrapping up, but just um, there's a lot of work that's happening in the organization currently on this issue, and the external factors which we've mentioned around health care reform are driving even more activity um, really related to our ability to address health disparities and try and achieve health equity, um, but also around improving the quality of care and the outcomes our patients receive. And so Trustee Banerjee mentioned there is research that shows that You know, that handoff and those transitions are where we lose people the most, and it's because of communication issues, trust issues, and their ability to access resources outside of the health system to drive uh, compliance. Um, And so the... Accountable Healthy Communities grant that you're referencing is just one example. The Medi-Cal 1115 waiver that we're working on has a component in it called whole person care. It's another example of where we work collaboratively with the social service agencies in the county and the Medi-Cal managed care plans to ensure that our patients have access to resources beyond the health system to ensure they're in compliance Right, with the regimes that we uh, recommend. Uh, So there's so much work that's happening. I'm so proud of this organization. You know, we talk a lot about whether or not cultural concordance and sameness is is important in treating uh, folks. And I'll tell you that one of my biggest fears or apprehensions about my transition is that the diversity of people and thought that I've experienced in Alameda County and Oakland is unlike anything I've experienced in my entire life. And not to diss Seattle, but um, it's definitely not Oakland. <laughs> and I grew up in an environment where I was the only African American throughout my entire schooling neighborhood, my parents would force us to go 30, 40 miles to a black church if they could find one, um, just so that I could see other black people. So I'm really going to miss the fact that I've worked with and for a community that not just is incredibly diverse, but has a unique appreciation for the differences that people bring to their work. In their life and so it's just I'm so proud of HS this is a conversation that's a reflection of things we're actually doing right and well and we're doing better than many and most in treating people in a way that's respectful and compassionate and consistent with their needs and so I'm proud of the team I'm proud of many and I'm so glad that I was able
1: to make this my last board meeting (laughs) Thing. Um, I thank you, um, and I wanted to say thank you to Minnie. I know you worked really hard on this, um, and one of the things that you, I think, basically took out, but I realized in when we were talking about it before, was the. Um, the history of your involvement involves Mr. Lasseter and Mr. Bogan, and there was a um, health equity um, council, and there was a lot of work done. And one of the things that they struggled very hard to do was to be able to gather these data because the computer system wasn't set up for it. And it was, we're going to take this thing out of the box. We are not making any changes. We are going to take, you know, and you all persevered and did a bunch of heroic heavy lifting and got them to change the IT system so that we could gather these data so that we could do this. And Because it's the best practice according to the national organizations that are involved in this kind of work. And uh, so thank you.
0: Uh, again, I... On behalf of the board, I extend our our appreciation to you both, but I I know this was a lot of work. Um, And so I suppose then I can, Mr. Rose, thank you for sitting through the whole meeting. That was very nice of you. Um, And thank you, team, for your contributions to this this program. We appreciate it very much. Okay. um, Meeting adjourned.